0: Hey there, welcome to The tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, there's a certain, I don't know, mystery surrounding the idea of blackwater botanical style aquariums. A lot of misunderstandings, misinterpretations, and some downright confusion that's been floating around out there. And much of it was put out, or has been put out, by a hobbyist who, despite their intentions, might never have even attempted to keep such an aquarium personally. At some of those regurgitation things drives me crazy in the hobby. But unfortunately, in their attempt to do a service, a lot of people have done a disservice. And I admit, you know, when it comes to botanical style aquariums, they're a little different than what we're used to, and they behave, look, and act differently than what we're familiar with. And I admit also that they're a bit of an enigma to a lot of people. I mean, we have aquariums with all the stuff decomposing in the water, yet many of us, if not all of us, manage to maintain high water quality and stability for extended periods of time without any real magic in terms of you know, procedure or equipment. So what gives? Are we just lucky or is there a method to this madness? Of course, not being a scientist makes it kind of challenging for me to make all kinds of assertions about water quality and chemistry. So for the purpose of this discussion, I'm going to at least focus on what we want to achieve, what we can measure water quality wise, and how botanical style aquariums seem to be able to pull it off given all that uh, amount of leaves and decomposing seed pods and so forth that are contained within all of them. Of course, observation and testing of water parameters are your two best friends. Is there, you know, they are in any water uh, aquarium specialty. We've kind of had a pretty good handle on, you know, which tests make the most sense for our pursuits, too. Uh, it's a given that ammonia, nitrite, pH and, and dKH are key indicators, which most obviously want to know about little needs to be said here uh, on the application or rationale or interpretation for utilizing these kind of tests in our, you know, aquarium work, you can Google each topic and pretty much come up with like, I don't know, 3000 articles on each subject. So just read, that's not what we're going to talk about here. <clears throat> and of course, their tests would give us information on the water quality of the environment that we've created nitrate and phosphate. They're also very important tests to, you know, botanical-style aquarium lovers because they help us get an understanding of the water quality trends occurring in our tanks. Nitrate in an NO3 is not necessarily considered toxic at a specific level, although a typical rule of thumb is to keep readings under 50 milligrams per liter or, better still, 20 milligrams per liter or less uh, for most fishes at most stages of, the life, of their life cycle. Although there's no really, you know, agreed-upon lethal dose... Uh, and many fishes can tolerate prolonged exposure to up to 500 milligrams of nitrate. Studies have revealed that prolonged exposure to elevated levels of nitrate may actually reduce fish's immunity, affecting their internal functions and their resistance to disease. So it can cause long-term health problems. Many fishes can adapt to a certain extent to a gradual increase in nitrate over time, although long-term physiological damage can occur. And of course, some fishes are much more sensitive than others, displaying deteriorating overall health or, you know, other symptoms at much lower levels. For example, some cichlids, discus, uh, you know, uh, sensitive killifish and betas and, uh, you know, a whole host of fishes. Now, one of the more interesting things about nitrate is that it can and will accumulate and rise over time in the aquarium if insufficient export mechanisms like water changes, Lack of chemical or biological filtration capacity, etc, exists within the aquarium. This of course gives the impression that fishes are doing okay when the reality is that they are exposed to a long-term stressor over time. And of course, there are many long understood approaches to reducing our you know these compounds in aquariums, and this is sort of long-settled aquarium knowledge, so none of this should be really new to you, although it deserves repeating here because it's so fundamentally important to our hobby specialty. The presence of aquatic plants, long known for utilization of nitrate as a growth factor, is also considered a viable way to reduce or export nitrates, along with good overall husbandry. In fact, I imagine that with all the experimentation going on with various aquatic plants in blackwater botanical-style aquariums, we may simply make the practice of including certain species, like you know floating plants or whatever, as a sort of de facto part of the nutrient export process in botanical-style aquariums at some point. I could see regular pruning and removal of plants as they grow as an easy, effective extension of the nutrient export process, much the way we did in the reef aquarium with macroalgae. When you remove the plant material via trimming, you're effectively exporting nutrients from the system permanently. Of course, even without plants, I've noticed some very interesting long-term trends regarding the water quality of my botanical-style aquariums over the years. In my botanical-filled natural-style aquariums, I've personally never observed or measured elevated levels of nitrate. In fact, with good husbandry in place, uh, undetectable, at least on a hobbyist grade, you know, test kit or, or a meter, uh, undetectable levels of nitrate have never been the norm for my system. I have always been the norm for my system. Excuse me. I've never detected this stuff. I think the highest nitrate reading I've personally recorded in a botanical style aquarium was around 10 milligrams per liter. Now, why is this? Well, let me speculate why. I think it's about coupling long-trusted husbandry practices with the processes which occur in nature. I personally feel that well-maintained systems, including our heavily botanically influenced ones, offer a significant medium for the growth and proliferation of beneficial bacteria species like nitrospora, etc., etc. I have a totally ungrounded theory that the presence of botanicals, although in itself a contributor to the biological load in the aquarium, is also a form of fuel to power the nitrification process, a carbon source, if you will. To elevate levels of biological activity in an otherwise well-maintained system. I think it's pretty sound. I know it sounds like a lot of cobbled together bumbo-jumbo, but I really think there's something there. I mean, when you think about it, a botanically rich aquarium with leaves and other materials fosters the growth of bacteria, fungi, biofilms, and supports crustaceans and other organisms which can consume and metabolize the botanicals as they break down physically, along with fish waste and other organics which arise as a result of the process. A sort of onboard biological filtration system if you will with the added benefit that the fishes will consume some of these organisms perhaps and some might say that i'm reaching here a bit even the basis for a sort of food chain something that we know exists in all natural aquatic ecosystems it's something to think about i find this among the single most you know fascinating and exciting potential benefits of a botanical style aquarium in fact I believe that once a serious study is conducted on this stuff, it may prove to be a foundational component of the botanical-style aquarium. We may embrace the addition and decomposition of natural materials in our aquariums as a sort of catalyst to, you know, create stable, productive, closed ecosystems which effectively metabolize the materials within them. Just like in nature. Sure, it may not be the classic definition of beauty in the aquarium hobby, but from a functional standpoint, it's magnificent. And yeah, I realize that our aquariums, no matter how cool they look and what processes they embrace are not open natural systems. However, I feel that many of the same processes which occur in nature, vis-a-vis nutrient export and so forth, are also present in our aquariums besides just the nitrogen cycle. And only further research is gonna really tell. The other measure of water quality that most of us should consider is phosphate, PO4. It's a salt of phosphoric acid, an inorganic chemical. And it's an essential chemical for the growth of plants, as most of you know. And for other living organisms phosphate gets a lot of bad press in the hobby particularly on the marine side uh, because it's a contributor to the growth and proliferation of algae it is however it's only half the equation as algae grows if nitrogen is also present and sufficient light of course so it's a contributor to algae issues and overall water quality not the sole culprit in the reef side of the you know the hobby phosphate has long been vilified as a growth inhibitor of coral it inhibits calcification and all manner of additives and reactors and removal media have been developed to combat it. The reality in my humble opinion is that phosphate although a great measure of overall water quality tends not to become a problem in an otherwise well-managed aquarium. It gets into our system in the first place primarily with food or source water And will accumulate if mechanisms for its absorption or utilization or removal don't exist, just like with all the other things that we don't want in our tanks. So yeah, what's the way we get rid of this? Perform water exchanges with high quality water. Yet another argument in favor of them. My head absolutely explodes. I've talked about this before, but my head explodes when I hear hobbyists bragging that they never do water exchanges and the tank's thriving. Why the fuck would you want to do this? And why would you be proud of this completely irresponsible behavior? I literally got an email from somebody last week bragging about how they never do this and, you know, my tank's balanced and da-da-da-da. Maybe it is. I don't know. But because they're closed aquatic ecosystems, our aquariums simply can't process 100% of the organic material accumulating in the water. So when you issue water changes, this stuff has continued to accumulate. And you're essentially operating on borrowed time before the concentration becomes detrimental to your fishes. Or are you? I mean, I ask this question with all due sincerity. I mean, could it be that the age-old dream of a perfectly balanced aquarium is possible even when we, you know, what we consider fundamental, foundational husbandry practices are ignored? I couldn't say for certain why success comes to some of these people who apparently skirt this principle of aquarium keeping. It seems that odd that they would take such a seemingly apathetic approach just topping off evaporating water, feeding their fishes, replacing filter media, and nothing else. On the other hand, is there something to it? Or is this just dumb luck? Could it be that they have, perhaps through no deliberate effort of their own, sorry guys, achieved some sort of wild and weird import-export equilibrium and that the system metabolizes all or almost all of the nutrients and trace elements imparted you know, into the water with complete efficiency? Or is it balancing on razor as you know, edge between disaster and success? I personally don't think, Ah, You know what? We'll just stop with it here. I can go on and on and debate this for days. Just don't start me. But this thing about water changes, I'm not sure if it's the physical process of doing water exchanges, but a lot of hobbyists just hate doing them. Like, really hate them. They'd rather do almost anything else besides water exchanges. Entire aquarium product lines, schemes, and husbandry philosophies have been invented over the years to help limit or even eliminate having to do these water exchanges. Hobbyists go to great lengths and expense to avoid doing them or to automate them. I've seen guys, I've had friends personally who have literally flooded their homes like major insurance claim type floods by designing and building complex automatic water exchanges, hook exchangers, you know, hooked up to RODI units or whatever for their tanks and and these things fail. Expensive, complicated, semi-reliable stuff all to avoid picking up a damn siphon hose. It's crazy. It's not that hard. Just make it part of your process. In the meantime, I'll keep doing, and recommending, water exchanges. Oh, and speaking of water exchanges, both nitrate and phosphate are typically present in tap water, I said that before, but let me reiterate. So when I espouse the use of an expensive reverse osmosis deionization unit to pre-treat your tap water, I'm recommending a means to eliminate them at the source, giving you at least a good start. Let's say it one more time. For our purposes, reverse osmosis deionization units, albeit somewhat pricey, are in my opinion an essential piece of equipment for any serious hobbyist who wants to play in this realm. In, not only do they create higher water quality right off the bat, but they also yield product water with little to no carbonate hardness, which is more malleable to pH manipulation via, via botanicals or leaves or whatever you're going to use. So, if you're going to experiment with this stuff, it just makes sense to start with better quality water. In general the water quality of our botanical influenced natural systems is something worthy of a lot of research experiments and discussion in our community and it is Uh, but it starts with something as fundamental as getting really good quality source water so that rodi unit is a really good buy there's so much interesting stuff happening in our tanks and so many things that we just don't know yet however with the you know for the things that we do know we're pretty focused on water quality and long-term maintenance those are essential and it's really a simple concept Engaging in regular maintenance practices in botanical-style aquariums is really no different than in any other style of aquarium. The main distinction, as we've said, like, I don't know, 5,000 times here, is to balance the practice of adding all the botanical materials that we add with disciplined husbandry. Nothing we can tell you is an absolute guarantee of perfect results. Aquariums are challenging. They're natural systems. This is not, you know, training a puppy. This is running an entire little natural closed ecosystem in your home. And it all starts with basics, and it starts with things like preparation of your botanicals, or preparation of your aquarium, for that matter. It's a cornerstone of our botanical-style aquarium practice. Remember, you're dealing with natural materials, and the results you see are governed by natural processes that we can only impact to a certain extent by preparation, and preparation before using them, and preparation of our aquariums, and and a cadence And when it comes to adding the botanicals to your aquarium, the second tier of this process is to add them to your aquarium slowly. We've said this a billion times, like don't add everything that you get from us or that you collect in nature or whatever all at once, particularly to an established stable aquarium. Think of botanicals as bioload, which require your bacterial, fungal, microcrustacean populations to handle them. Bacteria in particular are your first line of defense. If you add a large quantity of botanicals, or any organic materials to an established aquarium for that matter, you'll simply overwhelm the existing bacterial population in the aquarium, which will likely result in a massive increase in ammonia, nitrite, and organic pollutants. At the very least, it's going to leave oxygen levels depleted, and fishes will be gasping at the surface as the bacterial population struggles to catch up with the large influx of materials. I've seen this only a few times in the hobby. Um, I've never personally experienced this. Actually, no, I did one, so I'll be honest, I did one. I was deliberately trying to pollute a tank. But I have the, the very, very, very few failures that we've heard of over the years with botanical-style aquariums since I've been in, in practice here at Tannin were as a result of somebody emptying their entire Enigma pack or whatever into their existing 5-gallon tank at one time, and the inevitable results happen. This is not some sort of esoteric concept, right? I mean, we don't add 25 3-inch fishes at one time to an established stable 10-gallon aquarium and expect, not expect some sort of negative consequences, right? So why would we be adding a bunch of leaves, botanicals, wood, or other materials containing organics and expect things to be any different? So please, please add the botanicals to your established aquarium gradually while observing your fish's reactions and testing the water parameters regularly during and after the process. Take measured steps. There's no rush. There shouldn't be. It's interesting how the process of selecting, preparing, and adding botanicals to our aquariums has evolved over time since we've been in business. Initially, it was all about trying to discover what materials weren't toxic in some way and not killing our fishes that way. Then it was about figuring out ways to prepare them and to make sure that they didn't pollute the aquarium. Finally, and lately, it's been about taking the time to add them in a responsible, measured manner and to manage them as they break down in an aquarium and maintain water quality. That's certain quality we talk about. I, don't, I think our biggest struggle in working with botanicals is a mental one that we have imposed upon ourselves over generations of aquarium keeping. The need to control our own natural desire to get stuff moving quickly, hit that done thing, whatever that is, fast. And the reality is we've talked about hundreds of times here and elsewhere is that there really is no finished and that the botanical style aquarium is about evolution. It's about doing things slowly and measured and careful. And it all starts with a certain quality stay diligent, stay observant, stay methodical, stay patient, stay curious, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.